Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I'm joined by a new member of our mentoring team, Peter McKenzie. Hello, Peter. Hello. Very uh, pleased to be here, Kevin. Peter, you're sitting not in the UK, but in Spain. Tell us about how you ended up in Spain. Okay, well, that's, that's a long story. I, When I left university, I started uh, work for what was then a Coopers and Librand in London. And uh, my initial introduction to the, the accounting and finance world was to work for three years in a place called Plumtree Court, which was actually uh, very near Holborn for Coopers. And uh, I was an auditor, and that was where I, uh, after my three years, I successfully passed the uh, the exams and uh, became a chartered accountant. So I'm very pleased with that. But I have to say, I have to admit that auditing was not really my thing. It didn't really spark my uh, ambition to, uh, to to sustain practice. Uh, although I loved finance because I actually did uh, an accounting degree as well at university. Took a year and a half sabbatical. And uh, what I decided was back then, being like a very typical English person, I think, I didn't have any language skills. I decided to take a sabbatical and learn a language. And I didn't really know which one to choose, but I was given the opportunity to come to Spain and to be an English teacher. So I spent a year and a half in Valencia, which is on the east coast of Spain, about halfway down, as an English teacher, teaching English as a foreign language to, uh, to people in Valencia. And that is where I learned Spanish. And it's also where I met a girlfriend who later converted into my wife. No, you're so stuck in Spain at this point. That's why I'm, I'm in Spain. I didn't stay all that time from way back then because that was a long time ago. I went back to the UK, into banking, and then we ended up coming back to Spain after that. But that's my link. That's why I'm down here because in the end, I, I learned Spanish. And uh, when I went back into finance and went back into sort of working in, in industry, so to speak, I really wanted to use my language skills. So I ended up coming back to Spain and you know, working here for over 20 years. Does that mean that you're just as happy mentoring somebody who's a Spanish speaker, somebody who's an English speaker? Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, I mean, I've spent so long in Spain now that I, I speak and I use my Spanish daily. In fact, my role here it's 99% in Spanish, but I do use English uh, because ultimately our, our, our private equity owners are, are based in London. But most of my, my work is done in Spanish, and that's been the case for years. So I'm fluent in Spanish. I think in Spanish. I speak in Spanish all the time. So yes, for me, having you know, mentees in Spanish is no problem at all. For me, it's exactly the same English-Spanish. I hope it's the same for them. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about your background. You became a teacher. But clearly, you moved back into the finance world, and you talked about being in financial institutions. Tell me yes. about that. Yeah, so when I, when I when I went back, I mean, after although it was good fun being an English teacher, it didn't really uh, I couldn't see a future in it. Let's put it that way. So I um, I headed back to the UK, and it was 1994, which was quite a good time. The markets were pretty good back then. There was a lot of um, people looking for for finance, certainly newly qualified accountants. There was, a, there was a good market. So I went back to London, which is my hometown, and I got a job with City, so Citigroup, who at the time were based in the Strand in, in London. I started 
my career there. I started with City on the sort of trading capital market side. I was a, what they call a business financial controller. So I was sort of semi as an accounting professional, but semi sort of trader support. So running risk books and looking at you know, very interesting things like FX options and derivatives and all those sort of things that the banks were using back then to trade. And after that, I was then taken within City into a role where it was far more sort of accounting based. We were doing the books of various uh, European vehicles that City had, consolidating books, and very, very much sort of like a head office position within a, a multinational firm as, a, as, a, as an accountant. And, uh, and that's when I began to manage teams. And I, I worked with City for, for 20 years. And uh, I ended up, I moved back to Spain with City. I ended up being in Portugal for a while with them. I ended up touching nearly all of the businesses that City were running. So from the corporate investment banking through to retail, through to cards. You know, I spent 20 years with City and uh, I touched a lot of different pieces of the uh, of the show, so to speak. If you're working as a CFO or a aspiring CFO in the financial sector, Peter's your man. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I I'd like to think so because I mean, I, I as I say, I worked up. So I worked up from from being just an individual contributor all the way through to being a team leader to eventually being a CFO. So I was a CFO for a. I mean, three or four businesses within City. I was also a CFO in an operations unit, very large operations center that uh, they had based down in Spain as well. You know, financial institutions, banking, all of the stuff that comes with that side of the industry. I mean, I know it back to front. And some of the you know, the things that come along with that is you know some quite technical uh, pieces of you know challenges that come with being in a bank. Uh, I'm sure anyone listening will know about you know things like you know balance sheets rules and capital adequacy requirements, all those type of things. So I've, I've been through all of that. And I know that today it's still you know, very much the same sort of challenges people face as, as back then when I, was, when I was doing it as a CFO. So working in, in that kind of background, you, you must have had experience of mergers, acquisitions and all those types of good things. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've been through more mergers than I can count. I mean, even I know your, our background is also uh, with Coopers. So I started when I was with Coopers. Funnily enough, we had our first sort of merger right back then because in, in the UK, Coopers and Librand actually merged with Deloitte, if you remember that, before even the PwC before, came together. Before I joined Coopers. Okay, yeah. before you well, joined. I remember I joined Coopers and I, I think I'd just done the final interview and literally the day after my offer letter dropped through the door, another letter dropped through the door that said, oh, by the way, we're merging with PW. Right. Yeah, no, no. I mean, obviously, the, the you know, Coopers and PW, and they started my my life, my corporate life. I was I already started merging, but within City, when I joined City, City, that was the time when there was a guy on top of City called Sandy Weil, who basically was an acquisitions monster. He he went after everything that moved in the market. So we, as a group, they merged with a thing called Travelers Group. Uh, City absorbed Schroders, which was uh, a broker business that in the UK that I'm sure a lot of people know. Salomon Smith Barney was another part that came into the investment bank. So all the way through that whole process within City, we, I was involved in merging teams, not necessarily the corporate structuring, but, but in terms of actually merging teams, pulling teams together, pulling procedures together, constant change all the way through. From a professional standpoint, I've also been involved, especially when I was in the, in the corporate investment bank, 
in the actual transactions that we did as a bank. So I was involved in, in those as well from a transactional standpoint. And I had, I actually was a lead from an individual basis on a transaction where a startup company, a startup tech company was sold to a very large Japanese company. I mean, I've been involved in transactions and I've also sat within corporations that have been involved in, in mergers and acquisitions. That's two very, very different things. And I've never really been involved in the transactions, although the, I've been the, the finance lead in businesses that have been sold back in, back in my days in the chemical industry. Because I was so close to business, I wasn't allowed to be involved in the transaction. But the, the post-merger integration piece, I find as a fascinating one because I've seen it done very well. And I've also seen it done extremely badly. And there's a yes. Yeah to learn in that process there is and i mean i'm like you i've seen it done very well i've seen it done very badly and i mean there's always a difference in cultures no matter what type of institution you work for no matter what you you know if you're thinking it's two banks that are merging or two accountancy firms you think okay they're they're going to be the same a big four if you imagine that ey were to merge tomorrow with kpmg which is you know obviously not not possible but if it were You'd say, well, they're two big four accountancy firms that that would be the, you know, the same type of culture, but it's, you know, they're completely different. And within the banking world, it was very different to be within City and then to see the, the investment bankers coming from Salomon Smith Barney. They had a completely different attitude. It comes down a lot to the individual managers of the units as well. That's also true. How well you merge, how well you treat the people that are coming on board. There's always winners and losers in these things as well. That, that's also clear because most of these companies try and make it emerge. They try and make out that it's equal for everyone, but it never is. There's always a winner. There's always one of the two parties that tends to put more people in senior positions than, than the other. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting challenge. It's been interesting being part of that. I think, as you say, I think sometimes it's, it's done well, sometimes not so well. Peter, I believe that as well as, as your day job, where you're a general manager, you're mentoring. But you're also speaking. Tell me a little bit more about what you do as a speaker. Okay, so that this is a long story, so I won't bore people with my story. But I, I used to many years ago, when I guess when I was an up and coming CFO, I was never a big fan of speaking in public. I would always get by, could present, I could present to small groups, you know, five, six, seven people. I, you know, I had no problem doing the very basics, but it was never something I really enjoyed. When I took a role which was with that large operations unit within City, where suddenly I was sort of jettisoned into a much bigger team. And from there, I was actually made the site head of the operation. So I was promoted into the operation. We had over a 1,000 people. And um, my boss back then said, well, you're going to be expected, Peter, to give town halls to the team. And I was like, what does that mean, the town hall to the team? You know, does that mean the direct report team? What does that mean? He said, no, 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 you know, the 1,000 people. And I couldn't think of anything worse than having to stand in front of a thousand people and try and give them an update on anything. I figured I had to learn how to speak in public. So I, back then I went through a training process. I began to, to actually learn how to do this. And I ended up finding that I actually love speaking. Once I got over that initial anxiety, it's an absolutely fantastic place to be. It's really effective in terms of being a, a good leader because you, you can actually communicate to many people at once. The second thing, not many people enjoy public speaking. If you move into that space, you have a competitive advantage because suddenly you're 
one of the people that's willing to stand up and speak when most of your peers tend to sit back and say, I don't want to speak. So I ended up getting a real bug in terms of speaking, wanting to speak, speaking at conferences. And ever since then, I've done it because I've spoken at internal conferences where I've worked, but I even now speak at external industry conferences. So I, for example, I was speaking next week in Cyprus, just to give you an example, at a CFO conference. Um, although I'm officially, at the moment, I'm not working as a CFO, but I'm so involved in the CFO space. And I just love it. I love going to these conferences. I love seeing what's going on in the industry. I love speaking from my perspective of finance, about being a CFO, about how to be a better CFO. So um, I do that as a little bit of a, a side gig, but it's something I really, really enjoy. And it's something that I always say to people that are moving up into the CFO space. It's a skill that you have to acquire. I mean, it's a must because if you're a CFO and you don't have you know, elite, not just acceptable, but good communication skills, good public speaking skills, I think you know, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, because you've got to bring the team along with you. Chances are, as the CFO, you're involved right in the middle of change, right in the middle of business transformation. And that is only ever going to be successful by winning hearts and minds. Absolutely. And not just that, you have to influence the rest of your organization. So there is that first point, which I completely agree with you, Kevin, that you need to be able to speak and, and, and lead your team, but you also need to influence the rest of your organization. And the best way to do that is to be visible and to be standing on stage or standing in the boardroom as a CFO that's able to articulate your message to everyone, because that's how you gain influence. So when you see people that don't want to do that and they're not being visible, you're immediately, you're really unable to influence quite as effectively the rest of the organization. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that we've got uh, the virtual boardroom built into the Grow CFO, future CFO process, because teaching those skills to aspiring up and coming CFOs is so, so important. I think the other thing with what you're saying there, the virtual boardroom, the other thing is to practice, right? One of the things you learn about public speaking is the only way you can improve is to practice. To have that environment where you can practice being in a boardroom environment, influencing the board, communicating to the board, I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a very good move. Yeah. Your public speaking to CFOs, telling them how to get better. Do you have any sort of real pet subjects that you like talking about? Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I tend to – I like talking about the, the importance of courage, the importance of resilience and grit for being a, a CFO, you know, because these recent years, especially, I mean, we're coming through a really fairly difficult uh, period and the last couple of years coming out of the pan- pandemic, particularly these sort of topics have been quite popular. But uh, I think CFOs have always had a tough task because uh, there's a big ask of CFOs within any institution. I think we all know that, you know, when times are good, the CFO can be the sort of the partner, but you know sometimes it's, it's been a position where it's sort of you know taken for granted. But when things are, are more challenging, you know, economic climates are more difficult, like we have at the moment, you know, interest rates rising, inflation, and people having to sort of reduce costs. Suddenly, the CFO has to to be involved in that, and sometimes those things are quite difficult to implement. You know, they're not popular moves. They have to be quite sometimes it seems to be quite insular. You know, bring down the law and the rest of the to companies where they work, there's a requirement to be resilient, to have that grit, to have that drive, to have courage to make decisions, you know, and even the courage to make some mistakes as well. Because one of the other things I talk about is that a lot of finance people are perfectionists. When you get 
you know, you're, we're trained, aren't we, to sort of reconcile things back to the, you know, to the zero difference and to be really meticulous. But when you move into the higher ranks of an organization, if you're going to be a business partner, sometimes you need to do things where there's a risk. You don't get things 100% right because you don't have all of the information ever. Or if you're trying to get all of the information, you're not going to make decisions. Unlearning that perfectionism requires having the courage to sometimes make mistakes, as long as they're not deadly mistakes. You know, you have to have that courage. So that's one of my one of my pet areas that I talk about a lot. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more. Resilience. It's a word that's bandied around a lot. What really is resilience? Well, resilience is is being able to recover from setbacks. That's what I would say is the sort of definition of resilience. So when something doesn't go as expected, how quickly do you bounce back from that setback? How can you take the blows when things are difficult? How many blows can you take? How quickly do you put something behind you and get on with the job? How much does something affect you when something hasn't gone right? That's resilience. You know, you need to be thick skinned to be a CFO because sometimes you're going to have, you're going to come into conflict. That's the other thing. A lot of people avoid conflict as part of the resilience or the courage piece is knowing how to face conflict, how to deal with conflict, how to deal with difficult conversations, which can be anything from the, the board we just mentioned through to your CEO, who may be someone you need to control, maybe a difficult person, through to your peers. There's always going to be, if you're doing your job right, I think there's always going to be moments of conflict. So having resilience means you're able to deal with you know, situations that may not be optimal, you know, you're not always laughing and having a great time. And sometimes it's difficult moments. And how quickly you can you know, put those things behind you, get on with your, your, the next step. That to me is resilience. Yeah. And I know from experience, that's a hard, hard thing to acquire. It is. It is hard. Of taking things much too personally when they don't go right. Yeah. And the way I always say, I mean, I can go through my sort of talk on resilience. The main thing is to practice. And this, again, sounds a bit, about, sounds a bit silly, but you can, you can practice. It's getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable. That's how I always put it. So you can do that in non-important moments. You can, you can give feedback to people. Some people don't like to give feed, negative feedback to people or feedback, which is how to improve. But you can practice giving feedback, how to improve to a difficult staff member, for example, doing that in a moment that's not critical. And you practice feeling uncomfortable, but it's not actually vital for you. Because if you, the more you do that, or, or for example, pushing back on your boss, you know, if you've got a CEO who's difficult, sometimes you need to practice pushing back. And you can do that when it's not necessarily the most critical conversation for you or for him or for her. But if you practice it, you're more able to do it when it really counts for you. So again, these things are, it, it's like not always feeling comfortable, not avoiding discomfort. We need to practice feeling uncomfortable to be able to actually be effective when, you know, when it really counts. Well, the big message there is to grow. You've got to step out of your comfort zone. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, here again, when you look at your comfort zone, you want to be stressed because stress is a good thing. Because stress to grow, we have to get stressed. But you have to measure how much out of your comfort zone you're able to go. So it's not, it's, it's a balance between getting comfortable, feeling uncomfortable, but not feeling constantly uncomfortable. So it's almost like a game of playing, getting out of your comfort zone, going back in, recovering, going back out. This is the game. You know, people tend to be on both sides, Kevin. You know, some people are constantly stressed and then you're, you're facing burnout. Some people look to be constantly safe and then you're, you're really getting into a very boring uh, non-growth situation. So it's, it's that sort of middle ground. Peter, 
it sounds as though you have a really huge amount to give to up and coming CFOs. I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed chatting. And one, one thing we haven't touched on is the fact that at the moment you're you're not doing a CFO role, are you? You're doing a general manager role. That's right. Yeah. So I was the CFO. I was the CFO combined with um with a role that looked after technology for probably the last year and a half. But in December, I was offered the general manager role here. I still have a CEO on top of me because he looks after two companies actually within within Spain, two quite large companies. But I'm the general manager. Yeah, so I'm not 100% focused on finance, but I have a very, very good lady that was my number two in my finance team, who's now the CFO here. And you know, I like to think that's also, although I spend my time mentoring and coaching CFOs, and I tend to talk in finance circles, I think maybe my story is not a bad one for people that are looking to try and expand their role. And one of the things I like to say to people, Kevin, is I think the CFO role is expanding anyway these days. So I think you know, my experience is quite, I'm quite new in this role. I've been here for what, five months as a general manager, but I think it proves that CFOs, well, if I'm successful, which I hope I am, uh, it proves CFOs can move out of the, the pure finance role. You know, if while you're in that CFO role, you continue to explore other areas and, mm-hmm. and add value to other areas within your, within your firm. I personally believe that some of the better CFOs have had experience outside of the finance function somewhere during their career journey. A small stint in marketing or general management never comes in wrong. It, at the very least, helps you understand the the commercial realities of the business rather than just the numbers. Yeah, And it also helps you understand the challenges that other people outside of finance have on a day-to-day basis and helps you when you're you're in a finance role empathise with them. Yeah. No, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. I think that second point is is really key because we tend to talk our own sort of language within finance, and sometimes you don't understand that other people don't understand us quite as quite as well. And the other thing is, as you mentioned, you mentioned marketing. I think also anything that's customer facing, where you get to see customers, you know, their interaction with you or the customer, the value you your company or offering gives to a customer. I think that's also really key for the finance people to understand where the value is in the business. So I, I think also touching customers or, or touching a customer-facing part of the business is a, is a good thing to do. Peter, brilliant. We have covered so much today. Definitely going to have to have you back as a guest again and talk about some of these subjects we covered just briefly today in a lot more detail. I think we could probably record an entire podcast on resilience. We could ent- probably record another one on mergers and acquisitions and many other things that you write about and that you public speak about. Peter, thank you for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. It's been good fun. Thank you.